How can nonprofits drive social change in Chicago and beyond? Join business and nonprofit leaders on April 29th for the Onboard Conference from Chicago Booth's Rostandi Center for Social Sector Innovation. Gain insights from Obama Foundation CEO Valerie Jarrett on strengthening community engagement and building partnerships. Connect with experts in the social sector and discover how Chicago organizations are creating cultures of innovation and tackling pressing issues. Register at chicagobooth.edu slash onboard. In the year 1928, a scientific discovery occurred that would change humanity's future. And it was completely by accident. A miracle out of mold. That same green mold which everyone has seen growing in bread or ruining fruit and vegetables. This evil-looking fungus would still be regarded as a pest, were it not for a brilliant doctor, Professor Alexander Fleming of St. Mary's Hospital, London, who discovered that it produces the drug known as penicillin. He quickly found that this substance was able to kill all sorts of bacteria, but it took more than a decade for pharmaceutical companies to act on this discovery. Industrial monument to the miracle drug. Mass production penicillin plant at Terre Haute, Indiana, one of many where the life-saving medicine is now being manufactured wholesale. The arrival of penicillin marked the beginning of modern medicine. It led to the development of all kinds of new antibiotics to treat infections and diseases. But pretty soon, doctors started prescribing antibiotics more and more and more. And we started to notice a problem. I'd say that from the point when there was widespread antibiotic use, it became clear that some bacteria were able to develop resistance. That's Christopher Murray, professor and chair of health metric sciences at the University of Washington, where they've been studying a troubling trend. The miracle drug that has made modern medicine possible is working less and less. It's the classic evolution of warfare. You know, there's an antibiotic, it it can kill and attack the bacteria, they evolve or mutate to become resistant, and then that antibiotic no longer works, and then we have to look for another antibiotic or, or a modification so that it can overcome that resistance pattern. Dr. Murray is one of the authors of a new study published in the medical journal The Lancet that finds that in 2019, antibiotic-resistant infections directly killed more than a million people worldwide. It's, it's a big problem. Their study also found that antibiotic-resistant infections possibly played a role in 5 million more deaths worldwide. That's more than the number of people dying each year from HIV, AIDS, or malaria. That's right. You know, the difference between those two numbers, and there's quite a bit of controversy in the field as to the bigger number versus the smaller number, which one is the, quote, right number, you know, it bounds the the sort of the reality that's out there. In, in the smaller number, we're being very stringent in the criteria for saying the death is attributable to the resistance. In the inclusive number, it's just you had a drug-resistant infection. And while the world has been preoccupied with the COVID-19 pandemic, researchers warn that antibacterial resistance is another pandemic in the shadows. It is a ubiquitous problem and one that you should want the, the government and society to do something about it. From the University of Chicago Podcast Network, this is Big Brains, a podcast about the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. On this episode, the rise of antibiotic-resistant infections. I'm your host, Paul Rand. There's a term you're going to hear a lot about in this episode. 
AMR. It stands for antimicrobial resistance. Basically, it's what happens when bacteria becomes resistant to antibiotics. And when antibiotics don't work anymore, a relatively minor infection can be incurable or even deadly. It's a problem that scientists have kept an eye on for decades. But when Dr. Murray saw the numbers from their most recent study, they were shocked. Yes, even for the people in the field, I think it's a surprise on how big it is. And part of the reason that they're surprised by how big the numbers are is that there was a very influential study called the O'Neill Report uh, for the UK government on the risks of AMR. And they had started off with some numbers for 2015 that were quite a bit smaller, uh, only 750,000 deaths. Uh, and they were the more inclusive definition. So our 5 million number is the one that's comparable to their 750,000 number. So it's a big job, but we do strongly suspect that in aggregate, uh, deaths due to resistance are going up. So how are bacteria developing resistance? You know, basically what they do is through chance, there are mutations in their genome that change the target for the antibiotic, the pathway that the antibiotic is, is attacking. They change the target and the target is no longer affected by the antibiotic. By, you know, mutation of the DNA in, in the case of bacteria, you acquire, quote, acquire resistance. And there's actually ways that bacteria can rapidly share these resistance genes. And so you can actually see, you know, a, a mechanism to resist an antibiotic being exchanged between different pathogens. And so, you know, resistance can, can spread quickly, even jumping across species lines. Think of this like the COVID-19 pandemic. New variants emerge. What we think of in, in evolutionary terms of selective pressure, it's a funny term, but basically what it means is that you create an environment where if that mutation shows up, it's going to succeed and it's going to spread. Just like on COVID right now, when Omicron replaced Delta, it's because Omicron had a mutation that was made it more transmissible. There's another name for antibiotic-resistant bacteria that you may also have heard of, superbugs. And some of them you might already be familiar with. So there's a number of these sort of, quote, superbugs. And then there's a bunch where you haven't heard of them. Most people will have heard of, or some will have heard of something called MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. Staph aureus is a, a bug that you will see people with pneumonia quite a bit, particularly, uh, you know, people get this infection in hospitals. And it's one of the more common sources of drug resistance deaths in the world. Uh, TB, classic. But then there are these things like something called Acinetobacter, Baumani, which most people have never heard of. And then a very common bug that causes, you know, one of the major causes of pneumonia around the world, which is the Streptococcus, Streptococcus pneumoniae. These top six pathogens are a mixture of things that you know maybe the media's picked up or the, the, your, the audience knows about. And then there are these sort of quite, even for those who work in global health, would be super surprised to see, you know, Acinetobacter as a, as a major cause of death around the world. If antibiotic resistance keeps trending in the same direction, we could start to be back in a world where the simplest cut could be deadly, where illnesses many of us consider routine will become life-threatening. What's your prospect of dying if you, let's say, have a pneumonia? You know, now, if you take all comers to U.S. hospitals, 
even the ones who get hospitalized, the case fatality rate is you know less than five percent for pneumonia. Depends on the bug, but on average for them all. Whereas you know in the pre-antibiotic era, it would have been a much higher number. Look, antibiotics are, are life-saving drugs. Um, they can have or you know reduce your case fatality rate by 80-90%, a good antibiotic. And so truly life-saving. So people who need the antibiotics must get them and they need to get the antibiotics that work. So antibiotics really make a huge difference if you get to the point of having you know a, a bacterial uh, infection, a pneumonia or a bloodstream infection as, as examples. And not only will fear of infection out in the world become a part of life, but it will also make surgeries and other medical procedures we rely on much riskier. You know, somebody comes in from a road traffic accident and has a, an infection in their abdomen because you know they've had trauma. Lots of places you can get bacteria. Infection control is big, and for certain uh, drug-resistant pathogens like methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, that is the most common route of transmission. It's happening mostly in hospitals, through inadequate infection control. Okay, now you went out and looked at like more than 200 countries, is that right? Yes, you know, first we, we, we spread the net really broadly for data. Uh, by data, we, we had a very broad, inclusive view about what we meant by data. So not just lab data, but, you know, hospital admissions data, death certificates where sometimes the pathogen is listed, uh, linked data, which is super useful, uh, you know, studies on individual pathogens that are done as part of, of other studies, huge array of, of data sources. So we spread the knot broadly and then we looked and said, OK, how many of the pathogens can we be serious about this analysis? And we ended up with the 23. And then we ended up looking at 88 pathogen drug combinations uh, in the 204 countries. So how did this problem become so ubiquitous? Public health experts and scientists agree that one big reason is that doctors are overprescribing antibiotics and people are overusing them. Most patients don't come asking for a particular antibiotic. They usually just want, you know, advice. And if if your primary care provider tells you, you know, just go home and, and it'll pass, uh, that's when patients say, no, 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 I, I, you know, uh, I, I want something. And that creates a little bit of this pressure on the physician to give them something, right? But if we go around giving antibiotics to people who have a viral infection and isn't severe and there's no risk of them getting a secondary bacterial infection, then what are we doing? We are creating an environment that can encourage uh, a drug-resistant bacteria to uh, emerge. And overprescription isn't just a problem in high-income countries. This has touched all corners of the globe. In a number of countries, you can just walk into a pharmacy and buy these antibiotics uh, without a, a prescription. And so this, you know, effectively over-the-counter or direct from pharmacy sales are why we see resistance in, in West Africa, as an example. It's not just a, a high-income uh, settings. You know, there, there is more antibiotic use in high-income countries if you take all the numbers together. You know, to that end, one of the really big surprises and, and one that, you know, I think changed the way people think or is changing the way people think about AMR is that we found that there was uh, more deaths from AMR, for example, in 
low-income countries than in high-income countries. That seems so counterintuitive uh, because people say, well, hold on, there's, there's more antibiotic use in rich countries, so shouldn't there be more uh, selection towards resistance there? But because the number of pneumonias or bloodstream infections or whatever infection you want to look at is so much higher, you know, fourfold higher in Africa than in a, in a high-income country, uh, you end up with more drug resistance. It's a bigger problem in, in that low-income setting, particularly when you're counting the you know, number of infections uh, and not just deaths. So it is a true global problem, and that means the potential for spread is, is really very global uh, since resistant organisms can spread pretty quickly. But it's not just the overabundance of antibiotics that we're taking that's causing this problem. It's also the amount of meat that we're eating. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the big concerns that, that everyone has is that uh, the volume of antibiotics that go into animals is very large. With the massive and ever-growing demand for meat, the factory farm industry needs to get the most out of each animal. It's been shown that prophylactic antibiotics in animals leads to faster weight gain. And so in the livestock industry, there's really widespread use of antibiotics. So that when you talk about it that way, it's that they're not showing signs of illness. They're doing it as a way to give them a, a way of putting on weight faster. Basically, yes. So it's, it is mass use of antibiotics. It's not like this cow got sick and I took him to the vet and he got an antibiotic or she. It's that they stick in the feed for all the cows. And so the question is, is there a jump from that clear... Uh, pressure to encourage the, the spread of resistance genes in the animal world into the humans. It seems like that's a real risk and there are specific studies that trace that jump from animals into humans. What's missing is just what fraction of human deaths from AMR are somehow linked back to the food supply. And that's those are the types of studies that we need to know because it, it is a really big issue potentially of, of, you know, given the volume of antibiotics used in, in the food industry. This is a troubling and somewhat terrifying trend. But in their study, Dr. Murray and his co-authors laid out three key ways that we can tackle the superbug crisis. Those solutions after the break. Big Brains is supported by the University of Chicago Graham School. Are you a lifelong learner with an insatiable curiosity? Join us at Graham and access more than 50 open enrollment courses every quarter in literature, history, religion, science, and more. We open the doors of UChicago to learners everywhere. Expand your mind and advance your leadership. Online and in-person offerings are available. Learn more at graham.uchicago.edu slash bigbrains. One simple way we could reverse the rise of antibacterial resistance is, well, by just cutting back on our use of antibiotics. This is pretty easily addressed by just uh, reinforcing to physicians just what are the, the downside risks here. You know, not regulating physicians, but getting not, and, and, and not encroaching on their right to do what they think is the right thing for their patient, uh, but give them the information so that they can understand the risks and benefits that are involved with uh, antibiotics. The right use at the right time is, is key. 
So piece of advice for the people who get nervous when they have a cold. The responsible thing to do is to not ask your doctor for antibiotics. Let them see if that's the appropriate therapy. And then always be asking the question, uh, is there something convincing here that this is uh, not just a, a viral infection and, and antibiotics will, will have no effect. Another strategy is infection control. Just having fewer people get infections, right? If you have fewer pneumonias and you have fewer people with urinary tract infections and fewer people with bloodstream infections, then the whole challenge of AMR just becomes smaller. And so that means using things that will reduce infection. Uh, you know, infection control in some hospitals is high priority and gets adequate funding. But there are many that you visit or hear about where it's, you know, it's very low on the priority list or barely any effort to, to monitor and, and improve on infection control. But it's also going to be things like vaccination. We have a good vaccine, for example, against strep pneumo, which is one of the big causes of deaths from AMR. If everybody got vaccinated, uh, we would substantially reduce that. Uh, for things like E. coli or things that are that are transmitted through contaminated food or bad hygiene, then water and sanitation become a strategy. So there's this sort of like just reduce the volume of infection and there's lots of pieces to that strategy, right? But we should be using them all. It is often, it's easy to forget, but when you see the numbers where there's like four times more pneumonias per capita in Africa than in, in the United States, it's just a reminder that if you can reduce the number of pneumonias, period, uh, you're going to be way ahead on AMR. We've certainly read that hospitals can be really quite the hotspots for spreading of superbugs. And, and I just wonder, is that going to a hospital? And I'm going in, my family members are going in, I'm worried about catching a superbug in a hospital. What advice are you giving me then? You know, practice uh, basic infection control, you know, which we've all now learned the basics of through COVID, uh, you know, avoiding surfaces, hand washing. Um, if you're visiting somebody who's very sick, wearing a mask, th those strategies as a society we've become very familiar with uh, will also, you know, stand you well. By now, you may be wondering, why don't we just create new antibiotics that these bugs aren't resistant to? Well, that's one of the big solutions, right? Which is we invest more money in research and development to find novel antibiotics. You know, and so one of the conclusions from our work and lots of people who are out there championing that we take AMR seriously is that we need a, a bigger investment in R&D for antibiotics, both from the private sector as well as, you know, some of the basic research behind that from, from NIH and others. That's, that's a super important step. There's no guarantee, of course, that we'll always be coming up with novel classes of antibiotics because, you know, it's, it's a research and discovery process. There's not, a, is, there's not a cookbook formula that says, okay, we want a novel antibiotic, give me one in two years. The science has to find something either in nature or by, you know, designer molecules to sort of figure out what might be uh, novel strategies for antibiotics. Is enough money going to this? And if not, what would it take to get the funding necessary to, to be at what would be the right level? The feeling there is that there hasn't been enough investment. You know, if you go back to the 1960s, 
there was almost this sea change uh, and there was a famous address. The era of the infectious disease was coming to an end and we were moving on to the era of non-communicable diseases. And, and that view that infection was on its way out, I think did feed into less investment in new, new antibiotics. Uh, we need the same sort of more general push through, you know, both the, the public sector uh, research agencies, through advocacy, through public-private partnerships. And that really starts with awareness of size of problem and is it getting worse? And then I think we can hope that both the industry and the public sector will respond with, with bigger investment. Just like scientists have been warning about a global pandemic for years before COVID-19, scientists have also been warning about the rise of superbugs and the decline of effective antibiotics. In 2014, the World Health Organization released a report warning that the post-antibiotic era is near. Which is when there's a, a real threat or a potential threat, logical argument, some evidence, do you wait until the evidence is absolutely unequivocal uh, to act? Or do you, quote, follow the precautionary principle and you act on the risk that this is a serious threat to human health? And the European governments and the EU have actually legislated that you should use the precautionary principle. That's sort of why they tend to be more forward-looking on climate change and likewise, not surprising, on here on AMR. And so, you know, there is a little bit of like, what's the bar of evidence before we should act on something like antibiotics in the food supply? And in terms of tracking uh, and having the infrastructure to track how these superbugs are moving, do you get a sense that based on your study and others that there's turning into be a greater effort for tracking of these things and the global medical community is beginning to think we've got to really, like we've done with COVID, be a lot closer linked on this? You know, there's some promising signs. Uh, there are some exciting initiatives out there. Uh, the UK government, through something called the Fleming Fund, has invested quite a lot of money in trying to strengthen surveillance systems. Uh, the World Health Organization has uh, put more emphasis on what's called GLASS, which is their reporting system on surveillance. Uh, so there, there's, there's, there's progress on the surveillance front. We're hoping the, the focus on pathogens and on COVID and laboratory capacity may have a spillover effect so that if there is better pandemic monitoring, that that'll help us get better real-time data on, on resistance patterns. Global surveillance is key, and, and not just global, but national surveillance, so that you know you can help inform decision-making in each country, absolutely key. And there is some glimmer of, of hope there. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on big brains, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast. Big Brains is a production of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review. The show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap, and Leah Cesarine. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.